Amen. Powerful song to be sung over us and very appropriate as we study through the Psalms this morning. This summer we have been going through the book of the Psalms, just kind of skipping around. And the Psalms, of course, is the songbook of the Bible. And uh, so this is where we get the uh, this is where we get the this real treasure for Christian life with regards to what the scriptures say in the psalm. And in the psalms you hear a voice that's kind of new to scripture uh, when you look at the text. As we've studied through this book, you will have noticed that in the psalms you hear a voice of personal prayer, you hear a voice of soul searching, you hear a voice of praise, you hear a voice of hope. Of course, there's also lament and despair, there's true intercession. And these psalms generally come from a very personal place. And are not only poetic, but also contain really raw emotions from the writer. So a few weeks ago, we looked at the first two chapters of the book of the Psalms, which serves as an introduction of sorts to the Psalter. And then the next five Psalms, Psalms 3 through 7, we find the writers drafting laments. They really come uh, a cries for help uh, that are found in Psalms 3 through 7. Psalm 3 considers the enemies that increased against David. Most of you know this psalm because our choir sings it. Thou, O Lord, art a shield for me. That's Psalm 3. Psalm 4 calls out to the wicked. It's a warning to the wicked. Psalm 5 includes groaning. He says he's groaning out to the Lord. Psalm 6, there's a plea for mercy. There's a plea for grace. It's a true psalm of confession. And then Psalm 7 once again puts attention on these adversaries that are surrounding the psalmist. And he's asking for vindication. But when we come to Psalm 8, there is a real change in the tone. Although we don't know for certain the identity of the writers for Psalm 1 and 2, we assume it's David. But we know with certainty that King David wrote Psalms 3 through 7. And then under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he pens for us Psalm 8. And it's in this psalm that we hear those glorious strains of joyful melody. This is really the first experience, if you read straight through the Psalms, this is the first experience of that joyous praise and adoration uh, that you'll encounter in the book. So if you'll look with me now, we're going to be in Psalm 8, and I'm going to read the psalm to you in its entirety. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes you have established strength, because of your adversaries, to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than God, and you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands, you put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So David's short yet thoughtful hymn praises the excellency of the name of God. And it marvels at how God has shown special concern for mankind. So it's in the midst of this praise to God for the majesty of his name that there's this realization of God's grandeur, man's deficiency, 
and this divine plan of how God empowers mankind. So we're going to first focus on verses 1 through 2, and the psalmist prays of the majestic power and protection of Yahweh displayed in creation. So the psalm opens with this statement of praise, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So I just want to go ahead and clear this up. We do not have enough oxygen in our lungs. There is not enough words in our vocabulary. There is not enough years in our lifetime. There is not enough energy in our bodies to adequately praise the glory, majesty, power, and authority of God. He is matchless. There is nothing to compare him to. There is no one like him. He stands alone as the highest and as the greatest. We are an unclean people with unclean lips who have no business trying to ascribe to God what he and he alone can ascribe to himself. But we are invited to consider, to marvel, to recognize who he is and what he's done. So David opens by just praising the name of the Lord. We bless your name. Most of our English translations repeat this word, Lord. O Lord, our Lord. If you're carrying the Christian Standard Bible, I think it says Yahweh, our Lord. I think the Revised Standard Version says, O Lord, our Sovereign. And the reason is because the Hebrew text contains two different words there. We translate both as Lord, but they're two different words. You may be able to notice it in your Bibles because the first time you see Lord, you may notice that those capital, I mean, the lowercase letters are not lowercase. They're just smaller capitals. That's how most versions of the English Bible translate this word. And then the second time you see Lord, it's in lowercase letters because these are two different words. There's deference shown towards the first occasion of Lord. There's respect shown towards that word. And the reason is this is translate the word that's translated as Lord is Yahweh. That's the personal name of God. This is the name that God revealed to Moses as his personal name. It's the way that God is most designated or most frequently designated in the scriptures. And the second word that's translated as Lord is the word Hebrew word Adonai. That's more of a common word. So somebody who has lordship over another may be called Adonai. But David is saying here, O Yahweh, our Adonai, O Yahweh, our Lord. And David's declaration is how majestic is your name. Majestic comes from the word, Hebrew word, Adir. And I know you're thinking, Wes, we didn't come here for a vocabulary lesson. But Mr. Molinax was my, an English teacher, and so I thought I better fit this in here for him, okay? So... The, the, this word adir, a too, little too much language lesson here, but the reason I want to point this out is because he's expressing how God's majesty is on display. He's not referring to the glory of God that's hidden, that's inward, that we cannot see, the Chabad of God that we can't lay our eyes upon. He's not trying to address how unapproachable this great and majestic God is, but he's saying we can see your glory on display. You revealed yourself to us. We can know you. We can see you. And I believe that's the main point we take from this idea about God's name. God has spoken and he has revealed himself to his creation. So we are not left to speculate. Who is there a creator? If so, who is this creator? How can we know this creator? But God has written himself into his own story. 
so that the characters, you and me, we can know him. We don't have to speculate. He's not just a God or that God or the other God. He is Yahweh, our Adonai. Can you imagine anything more kind that God could do than to tell us who he is and how we can know him? Well, that's what he's done. There's always been a mystical side, though, to the name of God. That really goes back to uh, Mount Sinai, where God gives the Ten Commandments to Moses. And the third commandment is, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. So to this day, Orthodox Jews won't say the name of God, Yahweh. They won't say it unless they're praying to God. They won't read it that way. Even if they're reading their Bibles, they'll change the pronunciation. They'll say Adonai instead of saying Yahweh. Or some of them will just say Hasim, the name. They won't, even, they won't come close to it because they don't want to even unintentionally take the name of the Lord in vain. And so there's a little bit of obsession here with that idea. But the message I think we take away from this is just how precious the name of God is. What a great gift we've been given. We know his name. He has not kept it secret. He's not hidden his identity from us. Do you know why? Because he wants to be known. He wants to be found out. He wants you knocking on his door, seeking him out, asking for him. So much so that the psalmist says he displays his splendor above the heavens. Just a couple of weeks ago, we were in Psalm 19. And of course, we discussed there the way in which God reveals himself in creation and how creation returns the favor and starts shouting praise to God just by existing. So David, in this passage, magnifies the name of Yahweh in all the earth, and he views it as displayed above the heavens. So it transcends the earth and up to above the heavens. So the presence of the name of God is an extension of his authority. Wherever his name is, there he has authority. It's like placing the flag in the ground, right? So David places the flag in the earth, and then he goes up above the heavens and he places it there, and he says he has authority from the, within the earth all the way to above the heavens. And then verse 2 casts the image of the most vulnerable and dependent state we can imagine, infancy. So we have this omnipotent God whose splendor is seen in creation. He rules over heaven and earth, and then there's this dramatic contrast with the most vulnerable state of humanity we can imagine, an infant. And the psalmist says, from the mouths of these babes, you have established strength. Your version may say, have brought forth power. God can use anything, right? He doesn't have to have a trained voice for that. He doesn't have to have a mature voice. He just needs a mouth. So the strength he is referring to is the power to overcome all of God's enemies. Well, I know what it's like to feel intimidated and to think that I'm not only unworthy, but incapable of properly opposing those who oppose the Lord. I know that feeling. But David demonstrates that God can empower even a baby to overcome his rivals. So there's this reminder to us that we don't have to come to God with all the strength or all the skills or all the experiences or the age. We, we, he doesn't need that. We recognize very often in our weaknesses, that's where God begins to work. I'm reminded of 2 Corinthians 12, 9, where Paul writes, And he has said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, 
for power is perfected in weakness. God is bringing his enemies to an end so there'll be no more. And those who oppose God will not endure, even if he uses infants to do so. Well, we're not always given a context for where the psalm comes from. Like what experience he had to make him write this. There are headers here. In Psalm 8, it says, for the choir director on the giddeth. So it's for the musicians. And we don't quite know what the giddeth means. A lot of people speculate it's a musical instrument or it's a season, like when it's time to harvest grapes. And so at that time, this psalm is supposed to be used. But Warren Wearsby has another idea. He thinks that the header that you find above Psalm 9 is actually meant to go along with Psalm 8. And that there's, there's evidence for that in Scripture of Psalms that would carry it at the end of it in the Hebrew text. And so Wearsby speculates here that where it says, For the choir director on Muth Laban in Psalm 9 actually should apply to Psalm 8. What on Muth Laban means is on the death of the son or on the death of the champion. Wearsby speculates that David possibly wrote Psalm 8 after slaying that old giant Goliath. So on the evening after killing Goliath, he goes up by himself and Wearsby imagines him on a hill somewhere looking up at the night sky, amazed at God and thinking, what have you done? You used me. And Wearsby envisions that whole idea, but he, he was, but David was but a babe in comparison to the giant, right? And you used a babe to overcome the power of the champion Goliath. Even King Saul accused David of being but a youth. There's a lot of other reasons why he thinks that might be connected. But the idea here is we can't know for sure whether this came from the moment that David slayed the giant but it does illuminate some of the words for us in a unique way. And what I think we can assert with confidence from these first two verses is that there is nothing too difficult for God. When we consider the work of God's hands, we are reminded God is all-powerful. He is an omnipotent God. Nothing is a match for Him. Nothing is a match for His power. He has unlimited authority. He has unlimited influence. He has the ability to do whatever his will dictates. He can do anything with power that can be done with power. In short, God is able. And I don't know if you walk in here this morning and you're struggling with that idea. Can God really do this? I'm not sure God can do that when you apply it to your own personal life. But God is able. Perhaps David did write this after he slayed the giant Goliath. Can you imagine that what it was like for David to approach the giant Goliath? Now, he comes across in 1 Samuel as very confident. But you have to imagine, just like you, he heard what other people were saying. Oh, he's too young. He's just a shepherd boy. He's untrained. He can't even wear the armor. You know, you should go back home. And then the taunts from the Philistines. And then the scoffing that was coming from Goliath. But David did not oppose Goliath in his own strength or according to his own skills. Remember, he said to Goliath, you come at me with sword, spear, and javelin, but I come at you in the name of the living God. I come at you in the name of Yahweh. That's what he said. It was through David's weakness that an all-powerful Yahweh would give Israel the victory and then receive the glory. Have you ever considered that your weaknesses might be used by God as strengths for his glory? 
I want you to think about that for a moment. You know, I was actually in my, in my quiet time, I'm in Judges right now, reading about Goliath. I mean, excuse me, about, uh, about um, Gideon. I'm in Judges. I'm reading about Gideon. And he uh, assembled that army. It was amazing how many people responded whenever he said, we've got to go oppose the enemy. But then David says, there's too many of them. I mean, God says, there's too many. You've got to get rid of some of them. Take only 300 men because I don't want the Israelites bragging thinking they did something. God uses weakness. And he might do the same thing in your own life. We try to impress people around us. Well, it's the same way with God. We try to think, you know, God, I mean, I got a little bit you might be interested in. You know, I can do a little good offense. I'm okay on the defense. I even got some good skills on special teams. Put me in, God. You know, that's we try to convince him, but he knows. Perhaps it's the weaknesses that you're most ashamed of that he's looking to use for his grand purposes. You may think you are unable, but remember, God is able. So the psalmist begins by declaring the glory and the power of the name of the Lord. Then in verses 3 and 4, David contrasts God's creative power with man's frailty. He says in verse 3, When I consider your heavens, the works of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained. David is surely staring at the night sky when this song is coming out in his head, when he's writing it down. He's awestruck. And in our day, we actually know that what dots the sky is not just artwork. We have limited comprehension of just how vast God's creative work is. We just marked the 50th anniversary this past week, weekend, of the lunar landing and the walk by Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin on the moon. That event is one of the greatest accomplishments of mankind in the history of our race. So much so we still talk about it. And we think, how in the world did that work out? What well, took an estimated 400,000 engineers, technicians, and scientists. It took about $25 billion, which translates to about $100 billion in our day, in order to pull off the Apollo program. So much work, so much time, so much money, just to set foot on the moon, to do a couple science experiments, put a flag down and a plaque. But David comments that God made the moon with just his fingers. It's intentional. It's like they just kind of flew off his fingers. No hard work, no research, no trial and error. So David rightfully declares the heavens are yours, God. We may leave a flag on the moon, but it, along with every square inch of creation, belongs to him. When I consider your heavens. So what happens when you look at what God has done? David says, and who am I? What is man that you take thought of me? God, you made all I can see. You've got so much to do, so much to think about. And all of a sudden, you're mindful of what I'm going through. You're concerned with me and my life. God considers you valuable. It's not because you're tall enough. It's not because you're smart enough. It's not because you have all the skills. God loves you because he made you and you are part of his treasured creation. So he's mindful of us. And he goes on to say in verse 4, What is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? Of course, David was not speaking directly of Jesus when he wrote son of man. But this is the title Jesus adopts for himself. Instead, David is offering for us the picture of a human spectator dwarfed by creation reaching a point of self-evaluation, thinking, who am I? I am so small, and thinking, why? How? 
And what we see is that God is so benevolent that when he thinks of you, when he thinks of mankind that he made, he's, it sparks a longing. So he starts lavishing upon you care because he cares about you. Psalm 8 is not mainly about God's divine power and about human significance. It is about divine grace and human frailty. In 1990, the space probe Voyager took pictures of our solar system while billions of miles away from Earth and transmitted this image back. The picture has become to known as the pale blue dot. Because if you look at the picture, you see these sunbeams, but right in the middle of one of those sunbeams is a white dot. It's actually got a blue hue to it. And it's smaller than one pixel of the image sent back. From billions of miles away, that's what Earth looks like. It's that dot. Carl Sagan, as a matter of fact, you can't see it. They can zoom in, circle it up for them. They can show you the circle. There it is. I did that right there. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Carl Sagan was an acclaimed astronomer and staunch atheist, and he's quoted as saying in reference to this picture, that's here. That's home. That's us. Own it everyone you love, everyone you know, everyone you ever heard of, every human being who ever was lived out their lives. The aggregate of our joy and suffering, every superstar, every supreme leader, every saint and sinner in the history of our species lived there on a moat of dust suspended in a sunbeam. Now Sagan missed it spiritually, but he hit the nail on the head when describing how significant this image is and our planet is. And I think how important God views us in light of how small we really are. All I can ever think is how small I am. Have you ever felt small before? I think that image should do it. When you consider God's handiwork, it's impossible not to feel small. He's just so great. I'm so little. Now, sometimes this can help me so that the troubles I'm facing, the burdens I'm being distracted by, the things that are inconveniencing my life, I put them in proper placement. These are not big deals, Wes. You know, don't treat it like it is. But I could also do something else here. And I could be tempted to think that everything I face is too small for God. I can imagine that God is concerned with much bigger matters that he is not really interested in what I'm going through. But that is absolutely contrary to the scriptures that invite you to cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. To be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving make your request known to God to ask and it will be given to you to seek and you will find to knock and the door will be open to you Gerald Wilson comments on Psalm 8 writing in spite of the incredible chasm that separates humans and their God so that humans as appear as but minuscule specks of dust on a rock revolving around one of thousands of stars in but one of countless galaxies flung across the universe, God is still mindful of humans and has the will, purpose, and incredible gifting for our lives. God is great, man is weak, but God gives power as power is needed. We see that here in the next part of the chapter. Verse 5 says, yet you have made. Human beings are no accident. Your life is not an afterthought. The circumstances that brought you into existence irreversibly are connected to God's plans for this world. He intends for you to be here. 
The creation narrative that other cultures believed at the time that David was speaking of this assumed that there were gods and lesser gods. And somewhere along the way, the lesser gods don't want to do any work, so they want humans who can come along and can be the slaves. But Genesis 1 and 2 is just very different from that. Out of love, with great forethought, God designs the heavens and the earth. We picture it as him just taking each day, uh, intimately working with and putting together the world as we know it until the sixth day, when God intentionally creates the first man and fashions the first woman. But he does something different in designing human life. The psalmist says you have made him a little lower than God. Some of your translations say you made him a little lower than the angels or the heavenly beings. So there's a little bit of debate about the proper translation. But the meaning there is that man is given the highest possible honor as earthly creatures. So God is not just mindful of man, he's incredibly kind towards us. Additionally, we bear his image. That means we were made for eternity. It means we we can love, we can think, and we can act in a way that honors him. And he goes on to write, and you crown him with glory and majesty. This is a way that God distinguishes humanity from the rest of creation. Mankind is set apart as image bearers of the living God with certain eternal attributes. And then he refers back to the Genesis account to show that God has given order to the world by setting mankind as ruler over his created works. He says, you make him to rule over the works of your hands, just like Genesis 1 describes. He then goes on to say, you have put all things under his feet. There's an important aspect to this position of authority given to humanity. This is not because man conquered or because man subdued, but this is because God ordered it. And if God orders it, that means the power is limited and it means there is accountability. But an interesting thing happens. God grants authority to man. Man loses it because of sin. But the gospel is that Jesus regained it all. Anytime a psalm is quoted in the New Testament and applied it to Jesus, it's referred to as a messianic psalm. So in that case, Psalm 8 is a messianic psalm because there are multiple times in the New Testament where this is applied to Jesus. One instance is Hebrews 2 and verse 6 where it says, What is man, this whole passage, what is man that you remember him or the son of man, that you are concerned about him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. So he applies it to Jesus. And what happens is God made Adam. Adam sins, and now Adam loses dominion. Romans 5 explains it like this. It says there's been a change of kings. And all of a sudden now, man, I mean sin reigns, death reigns, and man has become a slave. But God, who is mindful of sinful man, sent his son Jesus, who came to earth, demonstrated he had control over creation. Remember what he did with God's mighty works in creation? Multiplied fish, calmed storms, walked on water. He ruled over nature, and he regained the dominion that Adam had lost. But the best news of all is that Christ's work on the cross did not merely undo Adam's sin, but it put us back where Adam 
was. It gave us, in fact, it gave us much more. Romans 5, 9 says, much more then. Having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. That's Jesus. So we're saved by his blood. We're being made into the likeness of Jesus. So David concludes Psalm 8 by repeating the very first part of the, of the psalm. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Psalm 8 is glorious. It shows us that God is great, but in his greatness, he can, he's not forgotten man. He remembers us. Not only that, he's mindful of us. And he offers us salvation in Christ. Now, David's words here apply only to believers. We all can admire God's creation, the work of his fingers. But it's those who are saved who experience the, the work of the arm of the Lord. God visited earth for the sake of our salvation, but one day he'll return in judgment. Have you trusted Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins? Are you permitting him to rule and to reign in your life? God who is great does not draw near in order to destroy you. He draws near to lavish you with love, with grace, and with forgiveness. All you do is accept this free gift by believing in Jesus and receiving him into your life. Will you do that today? Our Father in God, we thank you for the preserved word that we can study this morning. We thank you for the magnificence of your creation. And we bless your name here today. Father, we pray for those who are here that don't know you, that today they may respond. May you speak to our hearts and may we respond. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. God's speaking to you today about a decision, salvation, baptism, church membership. We'd love for you to make that. I'm going to invite you to stand as our choir sings. I'll be waiting down front. You respond. <laughs>